This is Pastor Brian Wolfield of Hope Luther Church, and this is Table Scraps, an interview uh, that I am having. In fact, the first of what we hope to be at least 10 interview conversations uh, with Dr. Gregory Souls, uh, who is a doctor uh, of philosophy and professor at Concordia University, Mequon. And we're going to be talking about uh, what Dr. Souls has called the 10 master metaphors, the major philosophical metaphors that we ought to be familiar with to engage in the conversation uh, of the West, the Western world. Dr. Schulz, uh, welcome to the conversation. Hi, Brian. It's great to be with you. You were a pastor, uh, graduated from seminary, and then pursued a, uh, a doctorate in philosophy. What got you interested in philosophy as a pastor? Well, thanks. So I, I do have um, some years of experience in parish ministry, and I think it was um, more providence rather than any planning on my part. But what I certainly did notice was that in parish ministry, um, while enjoying the preaching and teaching quite a bit, um, it got to seem to me that the opportunities to talk with folks high school age and college age and then um, professionals, that there was a, a lot to be said for being able to offer hmm, a, a pretty carefully informed and educated view of some of the issues that we faced apologetically, you know, uh, stuff facing our lives ethically and interfacing the truth of Jesus and his word um, with, I hope this doesn't sound too hoity-toity, but with folks who've had a, a little extra education and or were simply put in the middle of things. And I, I have come really to like the thought that um, being, I still think, a pastor at heart and, and by divine call, um, this is a great opportunity uh, in my life and in my vocation to show um, university age folks and then uh, sometimes people doing advanced degree study uh, how very intelligible and downright winsome biblical doctrine and Lutheran teaching really is. And in particular, um, coming into the area of philosophy wasn't something I had planned on. It, it just developed that there were opportunities to do some adjunct teaching and then eventually I realized I really ought to have the Ph.D. in philosophy in order to be teaching philosophy courses and doing the work that I wanted to do for Jesus as uh, proclaiming him and explaining that he is the wisdom of God incarnate. Now, we had a very fantastic conversation at a recent doxology event. You were there teaching um, on on Christian suffering and how pastors are to be helpful to people in suffering. And I was I was chaplain, and we were, we were chatting a little bit. And I've always been interested in philosophy from a from a very great distance. But I've always been uh, curious about a couple of things about philosophy. One is it seems like um, the the philosophers have in their hand. Uh, or in their back pocket, the illustrations that they can always use to demonstrate the point. One, it's one of the kind of arts of philosophical conversation is you're always ready with an illustration. So we were talking about that, and you said, well, Brian, I've got something else. I've got a list of what I call the master metaphors, uh, these philosophical metaphors that uh, that philosophers have brought up through the ages uh, that give us access into the philosophical conversation, what's called the great conversation. And you sent me the list, and and my imagination was set on fire and still is on these list of these 10 metaphors uh, that that we if we have access to and we can meditate on these pictures that the philosophers give us, uh, then we can be part of the conversation. What, what is the, um, and, and we'll spend 10 weeks talking about it, but could you, if you could just list these 10 metaphors and, and talk about the, maybe the strength of the idea of having a catalog of metaphors for meditating on philosophically. 
Well, Brian, I thought that the conversation that we had was uh, pretty exciting, too. And this bridge to be able to make this available well outside of my classrooms is is pretty exciting and gratifying. So um, it's very important for me to say up front, I don't mean to substitute philosophical thinking or philosophical master metaphors for the work that we do as pastors and as Christians in the church and, and in the Lord's world. There's just no substitute for the scripture as the means of grace. But then scripture itself shows us that we have a mandate to be involved, to be always ready, as Peter says, to give an answer, an apologian, uh, for the reason of the hope that we have in Christ. We see the example of Paul and many, many other uh, people in Scripture defending the faith in in public and um, to people who are not believers. So uh, the list is is preliminary, but I found it to be kind of interesting to work at it. I'm pretty sure it's not all original, but at any rate, this is my list from my years of reading and teaching. So in these 10 metaphors, 10, let's say, stories to get our foot in the door or to um, have a place at the table for talking with people, um, ultimately with a view toward presenting them with Christ and his word, I have four from the Greek and medieval periods, and I have six from the modern and contemporary period. So here they come with a just a very brief tease or a comment on why they would be interesting. We're going to be looking at Plato's allegory of the cave. Um, and so I'm going to just leave that as something we're getting to right away in, in this broadcast. Then uh, if we step a little bit closer to the fullness of time with Aristotle, put him about 300 or 350 BC, we have his cross-examination of nature. That uh, would involve his so-called four causes, or if you will, a very high bar for saying that we know things around us, which I think is a great way to be introduced into thinking about God's creation. Um, it's also the case that Aristotle has informed thinking in the West right down to mm, 1600 or so. And then the characteristic of modernity, I think, is that people have, first of all, told us not to bother with Aristotle, and then we become illiterate. So Aristotle is somebody who's pretty important for understanding the way people do systematic theology through the Reformation century and a bit beyond to boot. Augustine's story of the pairs takes us down to about 400 AD, the time of that world-class philosopher and church thinker and bishop. It has to do with the will, um, taken in a way that I really don't think anybody prior to Augustine uh, could possibly have done because the Greeks had no theory of human will to speak of. Um, that's a fascinating story for a lot of reasons. Then continuing on into the medieval period, think of Thomas Aquinas. We'll be looking at his example of the phoenix as a way of understanding um, being or existence and essence. Stepping into the modern and contemporary period, which I would begin about 1600 AD, Rene Descartes, who's famous for um, talking about uh, the thinking self as the basis for all certainty, talks about the possibility of God being an evil demon in his meditations on first philosophy. Um, that's going to be a metaphor when we get to it that I think will explain um, how very insufficient philosophy has made itself by dismissing uh, Christ and the God of the Bible in any serious way from the conversation. With one notable exception, um, Barclay, we'll be talking about Barclay's table, Lord willing. Um, he's the 
probably last major modern philosopher who makes God a centerpiece in his thinking. Then Immanuel Kant, a huge figure for the Enlightenment, we're now up to just before 1800, we'll be talking about his uh, so-called categorical imperative, which I describe as the ultimate principle for relationships, uh, decidedly apart from scripture, and that'll be a part of that story. Then uh, coming right down through the 19th century and right on the border or the cusp of the 20th, we'll look at Nietzsche's madman. Uh, that might raise some hackles right away where people are thinking maybe Nietzsche doesn't belong in a list for this kind of conversation, but I'll explain why. I think he gives a an extremely useful diagnosis of how Western culture has uh, mutated by ignoring and deleting Christ and the God of the Bible. And then into the 20th century, we'll look at Ludwig Wittgenstein's rule for when to speak and when to be silent. Um, I call it his famous shut-up rule from the end of Tractatus. <laughs> and then finally, uh, it would seem that we could be of some help, help to one another, and certainly we've got to be able to talk in the great conversation about the difference between artificial intelligence and created human intelligence. Uh, so we'll be looking at Searle's Chinese room to clear up our thinking and maybe even provide some interesting thoughts for the uh, computer-minded and programming-minded people that might be listening to our discussions. Those are the 10 master metaphors. We're going to provide um, all, all these lists. We're going to provide some, uh, your introduction to each of these metaphors as well as the text of the metaphors. We're probably going to uh, carve out a place to do that at uh, whatdoesthismean.org uh, around the word. Uh, and look for there, when you look at the, on the blogs and the columns, look for master metaphors. And I'm hoping to have all these resources there so you can follow along in the list. Now, you're, if you're listening and you're listening to that list, you're thinking, I don't know any of these sorts of things. Well, this is exactly what I did. I, I knew Plato's cave from uh, uh, fr from high school and uh, and studying that in high school. I, I you know I, I remember um, uh, Nietzsche's God is Dead, the Madman, from watching Ghostbusters. But all these other ones were very un unfamiliar to me. And in fact, hopefully, part of these um, these interviews can can be you, the listener, and me. The talker can be learning from Dr. Schulz what these are and why they're so helpful. Um, I've been working on it a little bit, but not too much. So we're going to learn about all of these together. Now, you indicated the place to start is Plato's Allegory of the Cave uh, that he tells. It's in The Republic, um, his major work, Book 7 of The Republic. And again, we'll make this text available to people. And he and, and Plato paints paints the picture. Uh, let me let me start, and then you can fill in the details a little bit. The picture is of slaves who are in a cave, and they're chained in that cave in such a way that they cannot turn around, but they can only look at the back of the cave. And behind them is both the opening to the cave and a fire, and and things, people or presumably animals or whatever, are able to cross in front of that fire, and these slaves see the shadows cast on the back wall of the cave. Uh, and maybe even hear the sounds that these things make. You know, they see the shadow of a duck and hear the duck uh, walking across. But that's all they're able to know. Is that is that a good setup? I think it's a fine setup, Brian. I really don't want to interrupt too much the, the drama of what you're setting up for us. But I'm going to go ahead and mention, as you said, this is from Republic Book 7. Um, for the folks who are considering a look at Republic and I tell my undergraduates that they really should be embarrassed to take their diplomas on graduation day if they haven't read through and seriously discussed Republic at least once. But if you're going to look at Republic, 
um, and see the setting for this master metaphor. Uh, Republic is a, a major, major work of Western literature, though alas, we're not really reading and discussing it very much today. Um, the, the book itself is an examination of the human soul in terms of a large print model, which is the polis or the city, the republic, that Plato and his characters are sketching out for us. So in the course of Republic, the very first chapter undertakes a very important start to the Western conversation What uh, on the question, what is justice? And then the book is intended to develop its readers and those who talk about it morally and intellectually so that it turns out that we are actually involved in the stage-by-stage education or moral growth that's taking place in this story of the cave that we're looking at. Now, to push the play button on that nice description you began, Brian, the people are shackled, as you said, and one of them is basically able to get up and turn around. Um, All of us know from literature that that's a signal of kind of a conversion experience. So, uh, it's a 180-degree turn, and then that person who gets up sees the fire behind everybody and realizes that there are puppeteers or you might think of people doing uh, shadow plays on the wall that are throwing up these pictures that they were taking to be reality as they looked at the deeper wall of the cave. could think about it like a um, large-screen TV with surround sound, right? So. They're a bunch of couch potatoes, couch potatoes just looking at that wall. This person realizes that there's, get this, something more real behind the floating around day in and day out reality that we sense. He is on a roll when he discovers that there's a, a deeper reality behind things, and he continues behind the fire and moves out of the cave. And outside of the cave, he experiences what I, I kid with my undergrads that they doubtless experience after having two all-nighters and trying to jam their contact lenses in, you know, he gets out <laughs> into the bright sunlight and it's painful and he looks down and he sees reflections in, in puddles and bodies of water. He sees reflections of the sky and the clouds. Ultimately, he acclimates, looks up and sees the sun. And this is the ultimate feature of the story. Um, so the sun in the story, represents the pinnacle achievement of human knowing and understanding and becoming learned and wise uh, in that the sun stands for the idea of the good, that by which everything else is seen and understood. Uh, The man comes back into the cave, tells those people that he has this um, amazing discovery to share with them that he's found out what's ultimately behind reality and they kill him. You know, that's the end of the story. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, welcome back. Thanks for the good news. Uh, yeah. How beautiful are the feet of him who bring good news. Uh, uh-huh. So don't don't, uh, don't interrupt our shadow puppet watching, I suppose, is the uh, the moral of the story. 
Now, yes. there's so there's so many things here. So, I mean, the, the picture itself is a captivating picture. But I think maybe the first thing is when when Plato's talking about this metaphor and and the kind of state that these three stages of enlightenment. So you're moving past the shadows to you see the fire and the puppets. You're moving past the fire and the puppets to the outside to the shadows of the sun, and then you're seeing the sun itself. He he's not ta- this journey. These stages of enlightenment. It seems to me in Plato are um are are happening inside of yourself they're 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 kind of philosophical moves i I think at one point as plato's talking about what this means after he gives the metaphor he says uh, look uh, education is not outside of a person everything a person needs is in their own soul as well so that this light or this good is it belongs to each individual but is now being discovered um uh through the the process of education or philosophy Do, am i reading that right it's certainly possible to take that way. Um, I'm going to be a little a little pushier on that issue of inside. So um, I think that that um, it may be helpful to point out that even though we're inclined to think of ideas like, let's say, the capital I idea of the capital G good, we're inclined to think of ideas as being fundamentally in our heads. Um, that is not what Plato has in mind. The notion that ideas, the um, truths that we can know, are somehow contained within us or really technically and and definitely contained in our souls or our minds is really an invention of Rene Descartes. So prior to the modern period, people in the West, including Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle at the time, uh, roughly the time that we're looking at for the story of the cave, they would have taken it that the individual is personally involved, and this is indeed a monumental moral commitment or tragedy, depending on whether we learn it or not, and that uh, the health and well-being of other people around us is important, but the idea is in the public domain. So I think that Plato's emphasis is that if we don't seriously devote ourselves together to learning this, we're going to remain couch potatoes morally. Right. So um, he's saying that that you cannot be good. And in fact, you can't have a society that is good unless you're able at least to glimpse this ultimate idea, which he says is beyond being of the good, good, good. Right. Um, So Plato, Plato's approach to that, I think, is, you know, after my excitement about what he's what he's really doing and, and what an antidote it may be to the modern privatization of ideas. Uh, the fundamental uh, stumbling block here is that Plato believes that this is achieved simply by very, very careful, disciplined, more and more abstract thinking over time until you can achieve that enlightenment. And there, uh, I would say that, that, first of all, really does not fit the anthropology or the understanding of being human beings that we know in our lives. And it certainly uh, is opposed to the biblical anthropology where we are told in no uncertain terms that we are blind and dead and enemies of God. Um, Plato is nowhere near talking about the God of the Bible here. He's talking about that moral idea of the good. Uh, But I think what we could say is we are also blind, dead, and enemies of the good in a a much smaller uh, concern, something that Plato simply... um, can't 
can't deal with and can't handle. He's doing the best he can without scripture, and it fails to achieve escape velocity in terms of uh, saving the good or helping him or her do anything more than what we would call civic righteousness, you know, being educated and sincere and authentic and responsible uh, in our communities. So so this knowledge of the good might not be something that is inside of us to discover, but Plato does, uh, I, I think you uh, mentioned it, he does um, assume that we have the capacity on our own to both seek after the good and to discover it. Yes, I think, I think you're exactly right. And also, um, many, many thinkers who have taken up the story of Plato, Plato's cave have continued that optimistic view of things. Uh, and I, I would say in, in philosophy, um, optimism is, is never justified. <laughs> you know, you might, you might have the hope that you can do that, but we've had, uh, 2,500 years of experience in Western culture alone and and have found ourselves quite impotent when it comes really to living according to the good. Can can we contrast Plato's uh, his search for truth uh, and the Christian search for truth as the simple distinction between reason and revelation that the uh, that Plato is going to put us on a um, uh, as you said a careful and disciplined regiment of abstract thought or reason to get to the truth, whereas um, the Christian is going to say the truth in fact comes to us uh, in the prophetic and apostolic scriptures. Yeah, so. Um, I think, first of all, it's, it's possible to look at Plato on Plato's own terms and, on the one hand, admire that he's doing things better and more thoughtfully than we usually do today in the 21st century, but he also fails. Um, on the other hand, I think that it actually is contrary to the spirit of philosophy, the way the Greeks talked about it in its first initial phase. I think it's against the spirit of philosophy to pre-censor or to ignore um, the words of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. So uh, let me just cut to the chase on a passage that uh, you and I you know, preach on and, and use pretty often, and that's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So... Um, while we're talking or while folks are listening to your interview, they could um, pretty well just open their Bibles or pull up a text to 1 Corinthians 1. But perhaps my reminder of some of Paul's vocabulary there will um, seal the deal for, for what I'm trying to get at. So the Apostle Paul is carrying on his ministry and doing all of his writing in the first century A.D., the, the century of the fullness of time, as we know. And he's doing it in the Mediterranean and Greek world. So he's about, um, what, 300, 350 years removed from Aristotle and Plato, about 400 years and a little bit more from Socrates, who drank the hemlock in 399 BC. Um, those guys are all back at the beginning of what we Bible folks usually call the 400 silent years or the 400 years between the Testaments. So Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom that is, as you and I know, the Greek word sophos, which is in the word philosophy. Greeks look for wisdom, but we, I take it that's we apostles, Paul is saying, we preach Christ crucified. And then he specifically, blatantly, um, and I think, you know, kind of in neon words, refers to Jesus 
as, quote, Christ, the wisdom of God. So on, on this understanding, that is the biblical understanding, put above or next to Plato's cave, what we, what we really have is the answer to what Plato was after. So this um, ultimate standard, remember the good, <laughs> the idea of the good, 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 is beyond being, Plato says. It's like there is a, a, um, an eternal heaven for the platonic forms or ideas such as the good. And then Plato uh, intuits or can offer no better conclusion than that somehow we must come in into intellectual contact with that idea. And that's how we have an absolute standard for all people of all time, Greek and barbarian alike, to know what the morally good is. But that doesn't succeed. That doesn't succeed at all. So the fundamental problem is that he's trying to get by supposedly better and better thinking toward the idea of the good, whereas the Bible tells us that the good himself, who is the second person of the Trinity, has come into our flesh. Uh, it's not incidental that that's another heavy-duty term from Greek philosophy, the Logos. So the Logos became flesh and lived for a while among us, John writes, and we have seen him, right? The glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. So um, I, I would suggest that really we can recast the story of Plato's cave so that the arrow comes from God, who is the good, down into our world inside the cave. But then I can pull off, I think, both of those steps um, kind of together in a, in a redone story of the cave, so to speak. In other words, to show how Plato is not authentic enough, that he's not true to life, whereas <laughs> scripture is. So um, that reminds me, it reminds me of what yeah. uh, uh, Paul says, who, who will climb up to heaven to bring Christ down, but he is near to you in the word that's that's preached. If you if you don't mind, Doctor Schultz, let me uh, let me make sure that I understand Plato first, and then we can get him straightened out. Um, so so if I have a couple questions about the allegory of the cave, uh, the the first is as as you're moving away from the shadows to see the fire, and then moving outside the cave where you're blinded by the sun, and then being able to see the sun, how? Uh, it seems to me like if I was, you know, Plato and writing this allegory, it would just be you'd be go from the shadow to the sun. But what what are these intermediate stages that that Plato is going to take people through? I mean, what does it mean? I, I think it, if you're just looking at the shadows, that would be living in the world of senses and assuming that all that we see is all that there is. But what what is the, what is this move of first seeing the fire and then being blinded by the shadows? Could you explain that a little bit? I think so. Um, I'm fighting the temptation to keep on drawing in the air here where none of us can see what I'm doing. But <laughs> the, uh, the cave story can be divided into two big parts, and each of the big parts can be subdivided into two parts again. So there's inside the cave. Let's take that to be the realm of our um, everyday sensible world, which we are in touch with pretty much um, through the the use of our senses, and then maybe a little bit of thinking. Outside the cave is the intelligible world. Uh, the thought here is that our sensible world inside the cave seems to be filled with all sorts of um, 
constant change. And so the question is, you know, how can you really know anything? Nothing stays put. Uh, the shadows are always shifting. The voices are there and then they're gone. Whereas outside the cave, Plato feels that he's much closer to something that is definite and that stays put forever and ever without degrading. And that would be outside the cave, the realm where he locates the idea of the moral good. So this answers as best Plato can the question about normativity for ethics. You know, what's the norm? What's the standard ultimately that makes something morally good? So, um, Back inside the cave, let's take those two stages in there, and then I'll comment briefly on the two stages outside. Uh, we're providing a, a little chart that I've gratefully um, pulled and credited from, from the net for this. But this is actually a working out of two earlier um, little parables that explain what this big parable of the cave is about. Those are called the parable of the sun and the line from earlier Republic 7. So as the people are looking at the wall where the shadows are showing, um, you can say that Plato has a particular term for what kind of mental or soul activity they're doing, and then he has a term for what it is that they're thinking about with their soul or mind. So he envisions the people, let's just translate this into English, as um, using their imagination. So for the folks who are watching um, their Greek, it's eikosia, and their imagination is just kind of loosely paying attention like we might for a, a binge day of watching football on TV or something. They're just kind of loosely paying attention to what's on the screen and they're pretty much engrossed in it. When um, the person gets up and looks around at the fire, you could think about that as an activity of conviction, something more sure. Interestingly enough, that turns out to be the Greek word pistis, which many of us know as the New Testament's favorite term for faith. Um, and there, you could say that Plato is looking at a cause behind the scenes that makes things dependably be what we sort of see day in and day out. Outside the cave, remember, things get very abstract. So when Socrates or that person steps outside the cave, he's exercising mathematical knowledge. Um, call it dianoia. And the objects are things like, I suppose, triangles and perhaps numbers, just the sort of thing that intrigue us uh, when we're in high school studying geometry, the recognition that there's something eternal to the definition and idea of a triangle. But to the dismay of my um, mathematician friends, that's not the highest form of reasoning. <laughs> the highest is uh, what is sometimes called dialectical reason, and the Greek for that is noesis. And there it's... Uh, a glimpse of an intellectual and abstract thinking glimpse at that idea of the good. And that's what the man Socrates, I think, brings back into the cave and is killed for. Now, is this distinction between the visible world inside the cave and the invisible world of forms outside the cave, um, is that uh, – can we explain that just by re referring to Gnosticism, the, the basic tenet of Gnosticism to divide the world between material bad and, and spiritual good? Is that too simple of an explanation? Oh, Plato's the um, – I suppose the um, patron saint of Gnosticism. So Plato thought, um, as you know, that uh, the, the mind or the soul, the immaterial part of the human being, was the real essential human. Uh, whereas that soul was entrapped 
or um, imprisoned in a body. So we actually do see that platonic virus showing up down the lines in, in Western history. And for us as people of the book, um, Christians using the New Testament, we're actually seeing forms of Platonism or Neoplatonism when people are, are neglecting the fact that we are body-soul creatures, hyphenated, and that um, the body is really the site of worship and ethics, right? So um, Plato really sets the stage, or maybe he popularizes, even with this particular story, the notions that later on would plague the church and still bother people today, um, a virus that I think infects systematic theology sometimes, right? Where we, you know, we're going through things and we kind of assume that it's only the immaterial stuff that really counts and really lasts. Um, and we need to remember to keep on reading our scriptures and praying the creed. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Um, this is also, by the way, something that bothered early the early Christian fathers. Augustine has, uh, in my view, some major problems with Neoplatonism, uh, kind of a warmed-over version of Plato in some of his writing, too. Well, I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna ask two questions because I think they're actually the same question, uh, and it is: What was Plato arguing against? In other words, what was the worldview or the philosophical conviction about knowledge, enlightenment, or life, or whatever that he was uh, fighting against? Um, and the second question is: Why was this? Why was the man returning from the sun murdered? And I think that's going to be the, the answer is going to be the same. Now, there's a thing that motivated the captives in the cave to. Uh, to murder the person that came with the news of the outside world is going to be the same instinct that Plato's trying to fight against. What, what, what is that? Well, thanks for that, Pastor. I think um, putting those two questions together is a, a new and valuable thought for me. Uh, let me take this run at it. Um, this part of my answer is is certainly kind of contentious, but I'm going to say that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, you could think of them as the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of Greek philosophy and patriarchs of Western thought and culture, right? I, I contend that each of them does philosophy primarily to combat postmodernism. Now, that depends on an understanding of postmodernism not as a period or periods in history, like in postmodern art, where I think that understanding works, but that postmodernism is a certain disposition, a certain uh, skepticism that people do not want to resolve, a certain um, wild and pushy relativism that that people want to stick with. So prior to Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, Protagoras said, man is the measure of all things. And if, if we think about the fuller quote from Protagoras, he actually said, man is the measure of all things, of things that are that they are, and of things that are not that they are not. Um, that is relativism in a bumper sticker. <laughs> so it's, it's the thought that uh, what is moral for the Athenians may be immoral for the Spartans in their own city and community. And what's immoral for the Spartans may be moral or not for the Thebans, and, and so on. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle realized 
that this would be the absolute death of all the Greeks and of Greek culture and of thought. So each of them, in his own distinctive way building on the other, talks about the universality, especially of moral reality. That's what Plato's up to on my take. He's not just trying to give uh, to get famous for, for coming up with a story everybody in philosophy class is going to have to talk about for millennia. <laughs> he is producing uh, a persuasive, memorable, uh, technically robust look at how moral knowledge is not relativistic, right? So there is the good. It's not what's good for Athenians or what's good for Spartans. It's not a social science project. It is ethics. And he's talking about the norm for ethics. Now, when that person comes back in the cave and gets killed in terms of the story for trying to show that norm, that universal norm of the good outside the cave, and then is killed, um, I think, uh, to begin with, that that's Plato's way of memorializing his professor, his mentor, friend, and teacher, Socrates, who was executed by the Athenians for going around and asking, again, a universal question, by the way, you know, in that Socratic question, what is justice? What is piety? What is friendship? What is virtue? And you'll notice how non-postmodern that is. So I think that that whole story, the whole kickoff for Western philosophy is intended to oppose many of the philosophy thinkers that we know today as committed postmodernists who call for, you know, an infinite deferral of making your decision about what is good, who claim that there's no such thing as capital T truth for all human beings of all time. Um, that that um, postmodernism is the reason, I think, that Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle started philosophy. This is a, this is a challenge to me because my, um, my assumption has been uh, this basic assumption that Gnost that post postmodernism is Gnosticism and vice versa. Gnosticism is postmodernity. That the, that those two were essentially related. But but uh, the the picture that you're giving and it, and it makes sense is that Plato is in fact arguing um, for something absolute, an absolute morality that must be discovered, and our own lives must be shaped according to that absolute reality. Uh, that that he's really arguing not just for the definition of justice or or good, but in fact for the existence of definability. That that, that there can be a certainty about these things that we're looking after, and that um, that postmodernity can't abide by that because if there's if there's something hard like that in the universe, uh, then eventually I am going to run up against it uh, and be wounded, I suppose, in one way or another. Exactly, and. Or we are all going to suffer for adopting postmodern skepticism. You know, it's one thing um, to have a healthy skepticism and not take somebody's word for it, but to think things through for yourself and talk about it with other authorities. It's another thing to have a hard-hearted skepticism, such as perhaps Pilate had when he was looking truth incarnate in the face and saying, what is truth? And it's still something worse to have that and to be telling other people, and there is nothing but skepticism to be had. Everybody has to agree that there's no such thing as capital T truth or a capital G good standard. I think Plato's value today remains 
that he shows the corrosive character of that postmodern skepticism combined with um, teaching other people to give up on the project. But at the same time, um, I'm just going to sandwich in the thought that Plato was also uh, rebaptized in an effort to make Christianity in the early centuries after our Lord's crucifixion and resurrection sound more philosophical and immediately acceptable to Greek and Roman and, and Western culture. So the, the Neoplatonist Christian thinkers, uh, the folks who had read Plato a lot and, and wanted to get things cooking for, for making uh, the message of the gospel something that everybody wanted to look at, they would talk about that good, but they would resituate the outside of the cave so that the place where the good was was not just beyond being, but the good, according to them, would be the idos or idea of the good in, wait for it, the mind of God. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about whichever version you use, Plato's um, pagan and I think unsuccessful edition or that new platonic approach to situate things in the mind of God, um, the feature to catch in there for what we were just talking about is that there is a norm to be had. There's a norm to be had, and we can't give up until we have it. Or I think you and I would like to preach until he has us. What um, I, I'm interested in how the allegory of the cave is taken into the philosophical conversation, but I think we might pause that for uh, for future conversations and, and and maybe just expand a little bit uh, um, on who those Christian thinkers were who were dealing with Plato's cave and who were discussing it, and then um, and, and to get to you, I know you've, for example. Rewritten in a sermon, Plato's Cave, to see if this can be uh, understood in a helpful way for Christians. But who, before before yourself, who who are some of the Christian thinkers who were dealing with this either directly or indirectly? Uh, you miss, I think you mentioned uh, the uh, the Neoplatonist um, movement in the church. You also talked about how how um, Arist no, not Aristotle, how uh, Saint Augustine was working against Neoplatonism. Uh, so outline some of those contours. Well, I'd like to give you a fuller answer to that, Brian. I think out of the um, earlier church fathers who talked about it, I'm familiar enough with Justin Martyr really only to use one of his dialogues at any length, uh, that uh, fairly famous dialogue with Trifo, the Jew. And I have been spending some time in Augustine um, where I know that his Neoplatonism rears its head from time to time. Um, so what I'd like to do is just kind of demur on, on answering that question. You can probably find uh, better people to talk about that. I'm going to go ahead, though, to the opportunity you gave me to talk about how we would have to look at this um, biblically if, if we're to make any use of it at all. Now, remember, if I can remind our listeners, that um, you and I are, are very, very far from recommending that um, philosophy – would be a good substitute for our biblical and means of grace work. That's hardly the case. Um, but I do think that we need to have, or um, some of us in the church, um, because of our vocations, you know, teaching or our relationships, we ought to have a knowledge of some of these things so that we can, can kind of catch the attention of our um, atheist friends or for some of us in our writing and speaking like this, can explain in a way that will show Folks, you know, we've looked at this very broadly, 
and aren't simply showing out, aren't simply throwing out isolated Bible passages to hit people over the head with or something. So um, I would think if this would be reworked, we'd have to do what I had um, faulted Plato for earlier. You'd have to find a more faithful anthropology or understanding of the human being, and you'd have to take account hugely importantly and indispensably of Christ incarnate, God incarnate himself. So um, just to offer <laughs> maybe some sermon notes to our fellow pastors who are listening and you know are certainly welcome to pick this up and use it or do a better job with it, which is certainly possible. I, I thought back to the, uh, for stories of the cave, I thought back to that mining disaster in Chile several years ago. Uh, you remember following that in the news, these miners, was it uh, 30 sure. or 40 of them? Yeah. yeah. Um, were, were stuck in this cave underground. Um, they, I think this came out if I was uh, being diligent in my reading after that, I think it came out that they were actually on the verge of fulfilling a suicide pact because the, the sheer desperation, I can only imagine, and I don't want to imagine for very long, the sheer uh, desperation of being trapped underground, uh, under all of, all of that rock. Uh, I can, you know, I can feel this just claustrophobically closing in on me as, even as I'm describing it. Um, it was just too much. And they obviously did not save themselves by turning around and walking out of the cave, right? So, um, I think it would be more helpful to think, for instance, of, uh, that Franzman hymn that we use in our doxology worship pretty frequently that talks about how Jesus came to breathe our poisoned air. So instead of thinking of people getting themselves out of our moral failures, um, we need to think about this not as anything easy, but as something fatal. We're breathing poisoned air. Mm. To keep on trying to do this on our own is just breathing in air that's that's having the oxygen taking out of it. It's getting worse and worse. But into the middle of things comes Jesus, right? Not waiting outside and beaming beyond all being or something, but he comes into our everyday world. He, he comes there and comes over to us shackled by that wall, and he unshackles us with baptism and the supper and the word and absolution and uh, doesn't turn us around just to become better and better and more more and more abstract thinkers, but turns us around to embrace us and enfold us to himself. And then, you know, then he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, you know, as you're looking at me, as you're living in the light of me and my incarnation as a human being to save all of you, now go and love your neighbor as yourself. Um, so I think the the metaphor is valuable, especially to show that in the truth of Jesus and his word, um, we are capable of operating with some of the best and most enduring efforts that we've had in the West, that we too share in the concern and the horror and the defeat of how these have not resulted in heaven on earth or in an improvement in our human actions toward one another, uh, but we do have a response. And the response is something that eye hasn't seen and ear hasn't heard and abstract operations of the mind haven't conceived. Uh, it's what Jesus is and what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. Um, so what could we say? 
um, I think until we're taken to heaven, we're still in the cave. But the Lord has come in to be among us and to lead us out, right? right. As a shepherd, just to pile in one more metaphor. That's right. And I, and, and we see then in Jesus, uh, being the first fruits of the resurrection, leaving his own grave, uh, his own cave, which is, which is the tomb, uh, and coming into the light of the resurrection, not as, uh, uh, not as, uh, an enlightened soul, but even there with his perfected body to be before the Lord forever. And he will bring us there as well. That's beautiful. Well, Dr. Ah. Schultz, this is I, I, this is absolutely fantastic. I think it's a great start to the conversation. Um, uh, plenty to think about with Plato's allegory, the cave. Uh, listeners who want more resources on this can visit uh, whatdoesthismean.org and click on the Master Metaphors tab, and you'll see resources for this, along with this interview and so forth. Next week, we'll consider Aristotle's cross-examination of nature from Physics Book 2, Section 3. Uh, and uh, and keep the conversation going there. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brian. And all you listeners, if you have questions, uh, let us know. I think uh, prbw at tabletalkradio.org would be a good way to get it uh, here. And uh, thanks for joining the conversation, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.